Welcome back to the channel. As you probably know, the Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade. Whether a person loves that decision or hates that decision, here's the thing. 99% of the American public has absolutely no idea about the legal framework or the legal realities, the precedents, and the issues that bore upon the court's decision. Even those that think they do, don't. And the reason for that is that the court has been more than a little cagey because complete transparency on the issue of the 14th Amendment has some landmines concerning full public disclosure. Today, I'm going to disclose for you what is hidden behind the Supreme Court's veil in the Dobbs case. I hope you'll stay with me because self-governance requires knowledge and insight and being informed, and not just at the superficial level they would like you to look at. The Dr. Reality Vodcast with Dave Champion. Let's start with this. Roe v. Wade and Dobbs, the case that overturned Roe v. Wade, both turn on the 14th Amendment. So, quick, tell me what the 14th Amendment says. Tell me when it was enacted. Tell me upon whom it operates. Tell me upon whom it does not operate. All right, you see the problem. <laughs> the entire case turns on the 14th Amendment, yet virtually no Americans really know anything about the 14th Amendment. In order to keep this video short, I'm going to give you a very skeletal outline of the 14th Amendment. At the end of the Civil War, the freed black slaves were not citizens. Despite what people think, the original citizenship in the United States came from citizenship within a state of the Union. Prior to the 14th Amendment, there was no such thing as a national or federal citizenship. So the constitutions of the Southern states did not permit blacks born into slavery to become citizens. And Vattel's Law, which is the gold standard on all sorts of things, we'll just call it international relations for the sake of this video, makes clear that people fall into one of two categories. A person is a citizen or an alien. So the freed black slaves at the end of the Civil War were actually aliens upon the land of their birth. Now, you don't have to take my word for this. If you want to do all the hard work, you can go back and research the many things that were said by the people who were pro promoting and opposing the 14th Amendment back before it was ratified. And you will see the core issue that the 14th Amendment was trying to address was that we had all these people who were born here, but yet once they were free, they were not citizens. So they needed some form of citizenship. So the 14th Amendment did that for them. Now, there's a, an important codicil or note that I think it's significant in terms of the 14th Amendment. What the Supreme Court, way back right after the 14th Amendment was adopted, what the Supreme Court has said about the 14th Amendment that it applied to blacks held in slavery that had become free and to their posterity. And then later the court said, as well as that category also, others similarly situated. But for the purpose of this presentation, the important thing, it was blacks born into slavery, freed after the Civil War, and their posterity. The point of that is that the disability, being an alien in the land of their birth, 
would have been handed down from generation to generation, the 14th Amendment interceded in that. Here's another distinction between, I guess what we'll call de jure state citizens, which historically meant white citizens of the states of the Union. They were not granted citizenship. Nobody gave them citizenship. It was by virtue of their birth upon the land. And their unalienable rights went right along with that citizenship. So when the states ratified the 14th Amendment, and the 14th Amendment became part of the Constitution, the freed black slaves were now granted citizenship. So what were their rights? Well, they got rights in two ways. One was Congress could grant them rights through a statute or statutes. In other words, Congress could pass a law saying, okay, all you people that we just made federal citizens, here's your rights. Okay. And the second way was by something called incorporation through the judicial branch. We'll get into that in a minute, but I, I want to stop and take a moment and talk about statutes because post 14th Amendment ratification, do you know how many statutes vest 14th Amendment citizens with rights? One. And I'm going to share with you what it says. This is Title 42, Section 1981. Statement of Equal Rights is the title. Quote, all persons within the jurisdiction of the United States shall have the same right in every state and territory to make and enforce contracts, to sue, to be parties, give evidence, and to the full and equal benefit of all laws and proceedings for the security of persons and property, as is enjoyed by white citizens, and shall be subject to like punishment, pains, penalties, taxes, licenses, and exactions of every kind, and to no other. Close quote. That's a pretty scant list. So let's go through the main ones again. Yep. Make and enforce contracts. To sue. Be parties. Give evidence. And to the full and equal benefit of all laws and proceedings for the security of persons and property as is enjoyed by white citizens. So do you hear anything in there about rights like the right to remain silent, the right to freedom of association, the right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure, and a slew, a host of rights that were enjoyed by white citizens since the beginning of the country? Do you hear any of that in that statute? You might ask why in this statute all sorts of rights, at least the enumerated ones in the Bill of Rights that the American public enjoys and white citizens had enjoyed since the founding of this nation, why those rights were not listed in that statute, Title 42, Section 1981. The reason is, at the close of the Civil War and after the 13th Amendment and slavery was abolished, you'd have been hard-pressed to find a citizen, a white citizen, who believed that black people were equal to white people or that they deserved to be considered as equal before the law probably in the high 90 percentile of whites, did not believe that at all. So why would all the rights that white people have be given to the freed black slaves? President Lincoln is often referred to as the great emancipator. But what did President Lincoln say about blacks and whites living together in society? Here's what he had to say, quote, I am not, nor have I ever been, in favor 
of bringing about, in any way, the social and political equality of the white and black races. I am not, nor have I ever been, in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. And I will say, in addition to this, that there is a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two races from living together on terms of social and political equality. And inasmuch as they cannot so live, while they do remain together, there must be a position of superior and inferior. And I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. Close quote. To help you better understand the 14th Amendment, I'm going to put three links down in the show notes. Um, the first one is to a treatise on constitutions. The second one is on citizenship. And the third one is the 14th Amendment clarified. If you read the 14th Amendment clarified, you'll get the gist. But if you read them all, the citizenship, the constitution, and then the 14th Amendment clarified, you will forever understand the true and actual meaning of the 14th Amendment. And nobody can ever, especially the government, can ever buffalo you on that again. So, in terms of rights granted to 14th Amendment citizens by statute, we're done. 1981 is it. Well, un until we get into the Civil Rights Act later. So, as I said, the other way that 14th Amendment citizens have gotten rights is through something called the Incorporation Doctrine. And this is where the United States Supreme Court magically vests 14th Amendment citizens grants 14th Amendment citizens certain rights. The incorporation doctrine is not supported by statute. This is something the judicial branch cooked up all on its own without any justification from we the people. And I don't say that to make the point that it's good or bad, the incorporation doctrine, merely to point out that it has no basis in law. A bunch of guys that were sitting on the federal courts decided on their own this is what should happen. And in 1925, they began the incorporation. So what is the incorporation doctrine? That is where the court in various cases, challenges that have come up through the states, through the federal courts, to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court then takes enumerated rights that are in the Bill of Rights and says, okay, so this case was, as an example, freedom of speech. So it gets all the way to the Supreme Court, and it involves a 14th Amendment citizen. We know who that is. That would be the freed black slaves who were aliens upon the land and then were vested with citizenship via the 14th Amendment and their posterity. So a 14th Amendment defendant appeals a case all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And so in that case, the United States Supreme Court rules for the 14th Amendment defendant and says, we hereby incorporate the First Amendment right of free speech into the 14th Amendment as against the states of the Union. That's how incorporation is done. I want to reiterate and emphasize that the incorporation doctrine only pertains to enumerated rights in the Bill of Rights. That's an important part boundaries, if you will, of the court created, the judicial branch created principle of incorporation. I should also point out that for, again, we'll use the term, the original de jure white citizens, the Bill of Rights does not grant that class of person any rights. Those people were presumed to 
have those rights in place. Those rights came with their birth upon the land, and they had those rights, and their posterity had those rights since before the federal government was even formed. So the Bill of Rights doesn't grant the de jure, I hate to say this because it sounds racist, but historically it's accurate, the de jure white citizens, the Bill of Rights provides them with nothing. The Bill of Rights is for them a prohibition against action by the federal government. It doesn't grant anybody anything until the 14th Amendment came along and then the incorporation doctrine, whereby the court said, since these rights are enumerated, we're going to vest them over time in 14th Amendment citizens. Also, because this is 2022 and people are so emotional and make all sorts of bizarre accusations, I do want to clarify that because I'm laying out the historical, legal, and constitutional uh, background and boundaries and history of the 14th Amendment, which does in its very nature involve the white citizens versus the freed black slaves who eventually became 14th Amendment citizens, that is, in no way is that me expressing any racism. It's, I'm just laying it out factually, historically, as it went down. A moment ago, I mentioned that these rights were granted to 14th Amendment citizens slowly over time. So it may shock you to know that the right to keep and bear arms was not incorporated into the 14th Amendment until 2010 in the McDonald decision. So from the time 1868, the adoption of the 14th Amendment until 2010, 14th Amendment citizens in the, state, in the states of the Union did not have any federal protection concerning the right to bear arms. So if they don't have any federally protected right to keep and bear arms, and they're a 14th Amendment citizen, a federal citizen, they didn't have any right to keep and bear arms at all until 2010. I find that just mind-blowing. And you don't have to believe me. You can go back and read the McDonald case, and you can see where the court talks about the fact that it is, it is granting the 14th Amendment citizens the right to keep and bear arms by incorporating the Second Amendment into the 14th. You can go back and read it for yourself. Here's another shocker. 14th Amendment citizens in the United States did not have to have a unanimous verdict of a jury in a criminal case to be convicted until 2020. White people had to have a unanimous verdict of the jury, but not 14th Amendment citizens until 2020. Then there are the enumerated rights in the Bill of Rights that have still not been incorporated, one of them being that 14th Amendment citizens still do not have the same right as de jure white citizens of the States of the Union to have a civil case heard by a jury. There are some exceptions to having a jury in a civil trial, but that is in the Constitution, it is in the Bill of Rights, and in the overwhelming majority of civil actions, white de jure citizens are constitutionally entitled to a jury, where to this very day, 14th Amendment citizens aren't. Also, the right not to be charged or prosecuted for a capital or infamous crime absent an indictment by a grand jury. That's a constitutional requirement for the states that actually have that requirement. Not all states do. But if a state has that requirement, then white people must be indicted by a grand jury in order to be charged and prosecuted. But to this day, that does not apply to 14th Amendment citizens. It has never yet been incorporated. 
There are a few more examples, but you get the point. I'm not going to waste any more of your time. It's now time, since you have a better understanding of the 14th Amendment, to discuss the 14th Amendment in terms of Roe v. Wade and then the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. We need to start with the fact that Roe, in her pleadings, represented herself as a 14th Amendment citizen. Now, question as to whether she actually was or was not, but that's not a judicial question because the state never challenged that. So by the time the, the case got to the Supreme Court, that was the basis. It had, the, the, her status as a 14th Amendment had not been challenged by the opposition, so the court took her claim of being a 14th Amendment citizen on face value, and the case proceeded on that basis. I think it's important to understand that because absent the assertion by Roe that she was a 14th Amendment citizen, the federal courts would have had zero jurisdiction to even hear that case, no less have it march its way on up to the Supreme Court and have the Supreme Court rule on it. So at this juncture, we need to quickly review the two ways that a 14th Amendment citizen can get rights. Number one, by statute, we already covered that, it was Title 42, Section 1981, and later Civil Rights Acts. But there is nothing in any of those statutes about abortion. The other way for 14th Amendment citizens to get rights is through, as we discussed, the incorporation doctrine, and that only applies to enumerated rights in the Bill of Rights, and of course, abortion isn't mentioned. So now we get into what the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe was really all about. Let's start with this. There has never been a Supreme Court decision that incorporated the Ninth Amendment, which deals with non-enumerated rights, has never incorporated that into the 14th Amendment, and my estimation, never ever will. But the important thing is, at the time that Roe was being heard and decided, the Ninth Amendment had not been incorporated by the Supreme Court into the 14th Amendment. Yet, when you read the Roe decision, you find that the justices, the majority, they found a woman's right to make a decision concerning an abortion or not an abortion, continuing her pregnancy or not continuing her pregnancy, was found in the Ninth Amendment. So, Roe is a 14th Amendment citizen who only gets rights through statutes passed by Congress or the judicial branch through the incorporation doctrine. So, there was no statute granting 14th Amendment citizens any rights that could possibly be found in this, what would be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of non-enumerated rights under the umbrella of the Ninth Amendment, nor had the Ninth Amendment been incorporated by prior decisions of the Supreme Court. Yet, that's where the justices found the right. Are we seeing a structural constitutional flaw? The second issue, and by far I think the more important, is that the incorporation doctrine only applies to enumerated rights, and the majority in Roe had looked to the Ninth Amendment, which is an umbrella over non-enumerated rights. So if the incorporation doctrine only pertains to enumerated rights, and the majority had looked at non-enumerated rights and acted as if this non-enumerated right had been incorporated into the 14th, there's another constitutional structural problem in the Roe decision. Now, the Roe majority may have felt that they impliedly were incorporating the right of a woman to choose to continue her pregnancy or not 
by saying it's a right in the decision. They were impliedly incorporating it. But there's a couple structural problems with that. Number one, they did not say that. They did not come out and say they were incorporating that right into the 14th Amendment. They did not plainly state that. And of course, the other structural problem we've already discussed, the incorporation doctrine only applies to enumerated rights, which is probably why they didn't come out and publicly say in the decision they were incorporating it into the 14th because they couldn't. It's not an enumerated right in the Bill of Rights. So in the Dobbs decision, when Kavanaugh wrote these words, quote, the prior decision, speaking of Roe, is not just wrong, but is egregiously wrong. Now you understand what he was talking about. These are the structural issues concerning the incorporation doctrine, the Ninth Amendment, and statutory granting of rights to 14th Amendment citizens, blah, blah, blah. This whole scene, Roe did not comport itself with those standards, which, as we see here in 2022, left the door open for Dobbs to come along and overrule it. I am not going to share with you my opinion of whether a woman should be allowed, I'm not going to use the word right, should be allowed to be the one who makes the decision about whether or not to have an abortion rather than the body politic restricting her from that decision by law. I'm not going to share my opinion with you about that. I'm sure you have your own. But what I am going to tell you is that purely on a legal and constitutional basis, I agree with Dobbs that Roe was structurally and constitutionally unsound. And that presented some serious real-world problems moving forward if it was allowed to stand as a true precedent concerning how the court had fashioned its decision. So for the sake of correcting those structural deficiencies so that the court can move forward without those errors being enshrined as judicial precedent, in that regard, I support the outcome of Dobbs. Now that we understand both the 14th Amendment and the logic of Roe and the reasoning of Dobbs, let's take a moment and talk about what the implications of Dobbs might be in the future. Uh, just a couple cases that I think are illustrative of what I'm going to call it the, the Dobbs test for the sake of this presentation. In other words, was the right granted by statute or is it an enumerated right incorporated via the incorporation doctrine? I'm going to call that the Dobbs test. So if we look at Obergefell, 2015, I believe, uh, which is where the court said that homosexuals have a constitutional right under the 14th Amendment to marry. Same-sex marriage. Well, has Congress granted that in a statute? Mm, it is not. Is that an enumerated right in the Bill of Rights? Mm, no, it's not. So you see, Obergefell is vulnerable to being reversed by the Supreme Court under the Dobbs test. How about Loving v. Virginia, 1967? That was where the Supreme Court said black people have a constitutional protected right under the authority of the 14th Amendment to marry white people. <laughs> Interracial marriage protected by the 14th Amendment. So has Congress in its statutes granted the right to 14th Amendment citizens to marry white people? It is not. Is marriage an enumerated right in the Bill of Rights? It is not. So you can see Loving v. Virginia 
is vulnerable to being overturned using the Dobbs test. How about the famous Brown v. Board of Education from 1954, which is where the Supreme Court said that black students have a constitutionally protected right under the 14th Amendment not to be segregated when they go to public school. So did Congress pass a statute vesting that right in citizens, 14th Amendment citizens? No. Is that an enumerated right in the Bill of Rights? Mm, No. So we can go all the way back to Brown v. Board of Education and see that it is vulnerable to reversal by the United States Supreme Court under the Dobbs test. And I'm not saying that's going to happen, but but clearly vulnerable. And, and, And if you consider the test valid, then Brown would have to be reversed. And if Brown is reversed, then you're back to Plessy v. Ferguson 1896, the reprehensible separate but equal doctrine, which that decision by the Supreme Court was an absurdity on its face the moment it was pronounced. Because, of course, everybody in the the entire country, including the justices, knew that in states that engaged in segregation, there was no equality once the, the races were separated. Black schools did not get a fraction of the money that white schools did. Same thing with hospitals. So it was just a travesty. And Brown overruled Plessy. So if Brown goes away, then we're left with Plessy. We're back to Plessy again, separate but equal. I should also point out that under the Dobbs test, there is nothing stopping the states from enacting the 21st century version of Jim Crow laws. Nothing. We thought we'd do it. We really thought we were done with Jim Crow laws, but under the Dobbs test, there is no federal protection under the 14th Amendment for 14th Amendment citizens whose rights are grossly violated by, by Jim Crow laws. And by that, I mean natural rights, not, not the kind of rights that the 14th Amendment confers on them. I'm talking about rights in a moral sense. There's absolutely no protection for that under the 14th Amendment if you apply the Dobbs test. I should also point out that a, sta- a state can infringe on your rights just as easily as the federal government can. And as a matter of fact, James Madison was far more concerned about what he called regional governments, which we might call today states of the union. He was far more concerned about regional governments and local governments oppressing the rights of the people. He had very little concern about the federal government doing that, but he was confident most of the oppression of people's natural rights would come from regional and local governments. So it's important to understand, I think, that the uh, states' rights issue can be a double-edged sword. I understand why a lot of people support states' rights, as do I. However, I also recognize the double-edged sword. The double-edged sword is this. Let's imagine we're going to talk about uh, anti-gun in California. Right? We know California is very leftist and, and just really has a, a hatred for guns. Uh, so let's say a person has the right to keep and bear arms seriously infringed by the California government, and so that person files suit in state court. Because the person knows they're a white de jure citizen, knows they are not a 14th Amendment citizen, does not put in the filing that they are a 14th Amendment citizen. So it goes through the California court system, gets up to the California Supreme Court. The California Supreme Court says, we say it's fine to seriously infringe on your right to keep and bear arms, and there's nothing you can do about it. The way the landscape has worked, say, in the last 20 or 30 years, the plaintiff would simply appeal to the federal courts, and maybe it would end up at the Supreme Court. But here's the thing. Absent the assertion of being a 14th Amendment citizen, 
you just have to live with whatever the California Supreme Court says because the federal courts have no jurisdiction. For the federal courts to hear something, there has to be a federal issue. And since the Second Amendment doesn't grant your white people anything, it only grants that to 14th Amendment citizens, a case that's decided by the California Supreme Court against the right to keep and bear arms when the defendant has not claimed to be a 14th Amendment, the federal courts would have absolutely no jurisdiction to hear that. So you'd have to live with the California Supreme Court's decision. What would your options be at that point? Well, number one is live with it. Number two is vote with your feet. Move to another state. I did exactly that. Um, I always carry a concealed firearm. And uh, uh, California, up until the Bruin decision just several days ago, California had a May issue concealed carry permit system. In other words, you have to give them your good cause, why you feel you're justified. And then they just make an arbitrary, whimsical decision on whether they think you, in fact, do have good cause. So I lived in LA County at the time, and they don't issue CCWs unless you're something like a diamond merchant or you judge or you donate $10,000 to the sheriff's campaign. Other than that, you're not getting a CCW in Los Angeles County. So every single day when I left the house, I could be prosecuted criminally for exercising a constitutional right. So, because back in 2005 or 2006, when I first started to think I need to get out of this state, the Supreme Court had not yet issued the Heller decision or the McDonald decision. So I voted with my feet and I got the hell out of California and I came to Nevada, a state where when I carry concealed, unfortunately with a concealed carry permit, nevertheless, when I carry concealed, I can't be prosecuted criminally for exercising a constitutional right as I could have been in California. The few expositors who are talking publicly about the kind of things we've talked about today, they're saying, oh, the idea that the Supreme Court is going to overturn Obergefell or overturn Loving or overturn Brown v. Board of Education, oh, the Supreme Court isn't going to do that. Okay, here's the thing. If people file suit to challenge those decisions, and many others, such as the 14th Amendment protected right for contraception, and those cases do get to the United States Supreme Court, I don't see a way for the court to repudiate the Dobbs test. <laughs> it's the entire basis of Dobbs, which overturned Roe. So if the reasoning in Dobbs overturned Roe, then the reasoning in Dobbs must overturn all these other cases that we've talked about. I don't see a way for the court to get around that. So when people say, oh, that's never going to happen, yet yeah, how would that not happen? If you appreciate this sort of insightful legal analysis, I want to encourage you to run over to drreality.news. By doing so, you'll help me and you'll help yourself and pick yourself up a copy of Income Tax Shattering the Myths. Uh, just as I reveal here to you today, things you probably haven't heard discussed anywhere concerning Roe or Dobbs, yet they are the critical and pivotal issues that decided both. Likewise, in Income Tax Shattering the Myths, I break down the income tax laws in an easy-to-understand manner and show you beyond any doubt whatsoever. I prove that Congress has never imposed the income tax on the ordinary American who gets up, has a cup of coffee, gets the kids off to school and goes to work and collects their pay. That person has never had the income tax imposed on them by Congress. And the only reason that you probably think that Congress has imposed the income tax on people like you is because 
you don't know what the law really says, just like you didn't know about Roe and Dobbs until we talked today. So whether you choose to, when you find out the truth about the income tax, whether you intend to do something about it or not, Jefferson said, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, people who wish to be ignorant and free want something that never has been and never will be. You cannot be free and ignorant. So I want to encourage you to go to drreality.news, grab a copy of Income Tax Shattering This. You do have my word that it will be the most fascinating book of its type you have ever read in your life. And while you're there, pick up a copy of Body Science. I'm not going to go into a big explanation. I'll simply say I do the same thing concerning human physiology with a strong emphasis on nutritional physiology. And I point out all of the lies and subterfuge of the establishment over the last 60 years that has made the United States the most chronically ill society in the history of mankind, despite our wealth and our science and our technology and our medical industry. We are the most chronically ill society in all of human history. And it's because of the sophistry, the lies over the last 60 years. And I said all that straight in body science. Not only will this help you, you can be incredibly healthy. You can keep the property that's always been your own. It was only taken from you because you bought the into the lie. Not only that, but you'll help me to continue to be here for you. Thanks. 